hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. And we are back. I am your host, David, and this is your wonderful host, Sydney. Say hi, Sydney. Hey. So tell me the truth. Did you, by any chance, imagine the Mothman standing in your room since the last time that we talked about it? Oh, my God. You just gave me chills. But I did not. But now I probably (laughs) will tonight. So thanks for that. (laughs) You know what's so funny? I don't know if I just have a bad imagination, but like it's a little bit difficult for me to imagine this creature. Like I just and every time I try, I'm like I'm like putting eyeballs with it cuz he doesn't really have a head and he's right. like it's kind of more of a suggestion of an entity rather than right. like a fleshed out action figure. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not as it's almost like the way Hollywood movies try to suggest the creature but you never really quite see it until the end when when the when the creature rears its head and you're just like wow <laughs> like i can't wait till the wait, cgi like gets movie, better did you hear about um the creature in, in bird box have you seen bird box bird box bird box oh okay <laughs> yeah that like crazy i thought you said i thought you said bird box and i was like <laughs> it's 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 a it's bird it's a bird that that grew up listening to Bach, and now he's no. killing people. Oh, my gosh. Bach does not make you kill people, just so you know. Bach For is this, a great composer to listen to. <laughs> this Sunday, one bird will take classical music to the wrong extremes. <laughs> you were talking about yeah. like whether I saw the moth. It's hard to imagine. Night. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. It hard Sometimes to imagine. it's hard to imagine. Not that I want to be good at imagining it at all. Right. I'm glad I. I'm I, glad I, I will can. say that I did. I did Google the Mothman later because I was so curious because I couldn't really put an image to my mind either. And they like they sell figurines of him and like coloring books and like so much crazy stuff. And um, they all sort of look the same. So I, it's hard to explain. But do you know the? Um, the, f- the big fuzzy Looney Tune, the, the one that's like really big with red fuzz. I can't remember his name. Not he's Marvin like, the Martian. He's not no, big No, it's fuzzy. not. No, he's little and tiny. Yeah. No, I'm talking about the big, big fuzzy guy. It's not like that Tasmanian devil or anything, but he, and his hair is like red and he's got big eyes, but hit the, like the shape of his head is like a big square, like a big rectangle, I guess, like Gumby. Oh then, my God! You're right. Yeah, that's kind of what I affiliated it with. What What's the name of that guy? He looks like a fuzzy, plushy heart. His name is Gossamer. Gossamer? Wow! The, I would have never guessed. That. And he's red. He's red, right? I think he's red. Yeah, or brown or something. He's like he kind of looks like a fuzzy pair of <laughs> testicles, I guess, or like a fuzzy heart. You know, I, I I wish I I wish there was some other like thing I could say here, but I mean, <laughs> if I'm being if I'm being honest, he looks like he's like a pair of testicles that like is gonna surprise you, like nah. <laughs> and he's got sneakers on too. <laughs> he's yeah, got he sneakers, sneakers on. on. That's right. Yeah. He's very cute. I do remember him from my childhood. Okay, so my girlfriend had two synchronicities 
or rather oh. I was experiencing synchronicities with her. This just happened today. So I wanted to share these with you. I don't know if you've had any, I've had a lot of synchronicities lately, but I haven't been keeping the journal. So we're going to have to keep it. We're going to have to go back to it. Yeah, I, I want to keep the journal again, but nothing like super significant has happened to me. And I think that's why I haven't remembered to write anything down, even if it even if it has been tiny significance. So, yeah, let me let me, uh, you know, channel the channel, the energy waves out there. And I've had some crazy ones. I've had some crazy ones. Usually I have a lot of good ones. I think I think for for everybody listening and for us it's kind of like the more you write them down the more they happen to you in a weird way definitely. like like that the universe is like oh you're 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 paying attention to me let me let me play with you as well um and i've had a lot of crazy ones happen to me lately um but i just haven't written any of them down but today this morning uh my girlfriend told me she had like two dreams right that were okay. that one was not good and she says she dreamt of a – she was in a dark lake, and there was this massive creature that comes out of the water. She couldn't see oh, its no. form, but she could just see its glowing eyes, and she couldn't see what it was. And she was like – she was terrified. It was trying to get her. It was just like fear incarnate. And and then the next thing she told me, she had a dream uh, that she was playing tennis. And she's like, I don't even know how to play tennis. Like, I can't play tennis because <laughs> – Cause she can't. And, um, and she was like, but like, it was so confusing. Like, why would I be playing tennis like this and that? And it was like a tournament of some kind. And I was like, that's crazy. I'm like, first of all, this morning I purchased Mario tennis. So we are going to be playing tennis. Like the second she really? said that I had literally just purchased Mario tennis cause it was on sale. And I was like super excited about playing it with her. So I was like, there is tennis in your future. And the other thing is like the, the entity she's describing is very similar to a lot of the stories in this book in Mothman. Yeah. I was going to say, did she like pick up your book in the middle of the night and read some of it? <laughs> no, <laughs> she would not appreciate this book. She doesn't like horror. She doesn't, I mean, but she'll listen to this episode. She'll listen to these episodes. And I mean, I don't think we lean too much to try to scare people or anything. Um, but Boop. the stories themselves can be kind of, <laughs> whoa, be careful. That scared me. <laughs> the stories themselves can be, although, you know what? She does accidentally scare the crap out of me. The other day she was like, I hadn't realized she was in the bathroom and I was in the shower. And like, she just put her face up to the glass and I like oh look over and I see her face through the glass like suddenly, and I screamed so loud. <laughs> I was like, it was very it, psycho moment. It was terrifying. <laughs> you know, it only makes you wonder what what it would be like to see these these entities that are even scarier. Um, it must oh, yeah. be it must be truly truly terrifying. And at some level, maybe the terrifying aspect of them, the fear itself, is the whole point. And that's something that we're going to cover today. Um, I mean, in, in terms of like a recap of last time, how would we recap last time? Like, basically, we're covering The Mothman by John Keel. Maybe if you read any book on UFOs or about the supernatural, if you were to just read one book, this might be it. I mean, it's, really? it's that good. It's that all-encompassing. And it's so good that it's still extremely ahead of its time. Like there are things that I read here where I was like genuinely shaken and I was like, this is really important. Like some of his observations are so damn important that I'm like, I can't mess this up. I'm like, we have to talk about this. And anybody who listens to this, it is, it, it will only help us as a society 
break down some of these illusions that are caused by this phenomenon. Like he is so ahead of his time. Like he, he doesn't see this as just visitors from outer space. That is not what he believes is happening. At least he really, he attributes a lot of it to something more akin to like demons and like witchcraft and stuff and like entities, ah, yeah. like, like evil entities, tricksters and stuff. So we'll go into that more. I'm being cryptic for a reason because there's actually specific insights that he gives. But the, this, this has like seriously some of the best men in black stories that exist are in his research. I mean, he is, he is on the forefront of discovering that men in black are really have these goofy quirks that like they can't remember we covered the fact that he that they can't drink jello some of them or that they they have brand new clothing you know they they that's never been used before a lot of them they wear like platform boots they wear black obviously some of them they don't fit in their clothes some of them have wires coming out of them like we, we i think you were absolutely right about the fact that we cannot use, although the book is has really great intentions, and I don't think he is a racist at all, uh, he is using very outdated terms to describe people. So I do want to apologize for just using his language, but, you know, it's not... I, I think we'll try to modernize that language a little bit because he is describing a lot of the men in black as looking, I guess you would say, Asian. But it's kind of unclear as to what kind of Asian uh, they are, you know, like, because people interpret it differently. Some, some, somebody might say they're Japanese. Somebody might else might say they're Malaysian or something or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, I think the point is, Korean too, at one point. yeah, I think the point is that their eyes look like they're of Asian descent. They're they're sure. but their skin is very dark, but they, they're not black, you know? So like, they have Ambiguous. pointed, pointy chins. So we, so we covered. We, we this is a crazy book. It's it's not in order. Like this is not a book where John Keel gets to. It, any simpler author would have just been like, I got to Point Pleasant. This is the order of stuff that happened. Then a bunch of Mothman <laughs> stuff happened, and then the bridge collapses. The end. But no, this is then like I got the heck out of town. <laughs> yeah, and then I never came back. John Keel was actually your fault that the bridge collapsed. <laughs> Little does he know. <laughs> it was it was all a show for Keel. Well, well, I told you he becomes he becomes a character in this story, and a lot of what happens is reacting to him. He he describes a lot of cases where he ends up realizing that the entities, whether it's several or one or, I mean, it's definitely not just one intelligence. It's it seems like it's several beings, but it doesn't. It's not clear like who's in charge, right? Like what what underlying entity is in charge? So, but they start communicating with him by leaving messages to contactees about other contactees and that he would have to put together the code through what they say. So one of them might say, so one contactee might tell him, oh, by the way, they said, this is just a silly example just to explain, like it's chained together. So one contactee might say, oh, they said, you know, good luck getting marshmallows. The other one might say, oh, for some reason they said like something about chocolate. And the third one might say, oh, you know, they said something about graham crackers and like Keel will have just purchased like shit to make s'mores. And he's like, what the fuck? Like they're, they're like, what are they trying to tell me exactly? Like, but the, but the, the point is not the s'mores, although I love s'mores. We could just talk about s'mores for the rest of our I could talk lives. I all day. Yeah. <laughs> 
Let's talk about them some more some other time. Um, hey. Hey, yo. But the, the point is that it's like the phenomenon is communicating to him through the people that they're contacting. And he's realizing that he realizes later on, and we'll get into details, that like whatever this is, it knows exactly what he's doing, when he's doing it. It knows exactly who he talks to, even though he never makes a record of it or publishes a lot of the stuff. He, he didn't publish it until the book came out. He never publishes a lot of their names. Like they know exactly what he's going to be doing. You know, at one point towards the end of the book, he is like, he is convinced that a blackout is going to happen and like it's going to be like the end of the world. So, like, they freak him out. They, they mess with him so much that he gets to a point where like he's like, well, better safe than sorry. And he like packs his car, he packs all this water. And then on his way to like this remote location to this hotel, a contactee stops him and says, by the way, they told me to tell you that they're going to help you drink all that water. And like he's like nobody knows that I just bought all this water. Like that is wild. So you, and when you refer to they, you're talking about the Men in Black. Well, well, I mean, it could be aliens from outer space. It sure. could be demons from. But the the form of entity that he knows them as. It could be goblins. It could be. I mean, he's he's. Look, John Keel. This is this is a nonfiction book. Like we're the crazy thing about when people ask me what we do on our show is that I I tell them like we cover the classics in UFO literature and then eventually we'll branch off from there. Maybe we'll cover things that are more psychological based or religious based or that kind of stuff. But we're covering like a this is a legendary nonfiction book about what happened in this town. He, as far as he knows, he's telling you like these, this contact, he contacted me and told me these people are from, from planet uh, Lanulu, right? These people contacted me and told me they're actually from Venus. These people contact me. They're from there. Not only are they men in black that are contacting these people, but they're people that are showing up that are like claim they're from other planets, that kind of stuff. So I can't tell you what he thinks they are because right. that's sort of ambiguous, but it's pretty much like as if all these entities from different planets are contacting him through the contactees. That's what they would want us to believe. And a huge portion of the book delves into what do they want us to believe? Like what, how are they feeding off of what they want us to believe? Like, in other words, we need to give them, imagine an entity that doesn't have a physical form. It literally doesn't have a physical form. So, but it requires you to believe something in order for it to use that and convince you, to lie to you. So, your belief system is very important to its survival. So, you have to believe in angels for this thing to show up like an angel and be effective with what it's doing. You have to believe in UFOs for it to prove to you that it came from another planet. Like, if you don't have something that you believe, and right now as a society, I think, and we touch upon this with that UFOs and technology book that we do, right now, we're in a place where we, we're like, yeah, we're like, there could be a civilization advanced enough to have been here. Maybe they're just traveling through time and space. Like, we're getting to this point where we're like, yeah, like, this could be technologically advanced uh, civilization that has been here already or something. We are not thinking about the fact that they want us to believe that. So we'll get into that. So I don't know if I recapped it at all, but last time we talked about Men in Black, we covered the Mothman. Well, we covered Indrid 
Injured, Injured Cold. Cold. Yeah. And we're going to get back yeah. to that story. Injured Cold is a kind of a key to this episode because uh, Keel notices something about Cold that's very different than other UFO cases. So he kind of picks up on clues and his insights are incredible about Cold. So And Injured was one of the um, entities that he met personally, right? That was that was John Keel's direct I don't think he met him personally, but he met okay. the guy that... Um, that met him. Yeah. Okay. His name was... I. His name escapes me. It's Woodrow... Woodrow oh, yeah. Woodrow um, Derenberger. Yeah. That's right. Derenberger. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. So, yeah, I mean, this is a book about a man who's, who's, who's studied UFOs for years. Write this, he writes this unbelievable book called Operation Trojan Horse. And then at some point, he starts to get wind of sightings and things happening in Point Pleasant. He packs up West uh, Virginia, right? a couple, like, friends. He was He's living in New York at the time. Uh, yeah, in West Point, Virgi- Pleasant? Point Pleasant in West Virginia. Yeah. Is West Virginia. So he packs up. He, he brings a couple friends with him. One's, one of them is a filmmaker. Um, I forget what the other one is. And they, and they go out to Point Pleasant. They go out there and they start interviewing people about the things they're seeing. And he, what in his typical John Keel fashion, he does not tell his companions. It, like any other person would just be blabbering about what they believe about UFOs on the way to Point Pleasant, right? Their, their long car trip. Any of us would just be like glad to tell you all the crazy stuff <laughs> that we know. But Keel doesn't want to do that. Keel doesn't want to color any of their thoughts. He actually wants them, he kind of wants to watch them experience what's going on in this town on their own and draw their own conclusions. So instead of me telling you, Sydney, like we're gonna go to Point Pleasant and there's like a bunch of UFOs, it's gonna be crazy. It's like, well, there's been some crazy stories. Let's go see what happens. So they start interviewing people and the filmmaker and his other friend who might be a filmmaker too, like they they start to get shocked at what they find. Like they get freaked out. They, they realize something's going on. Those two people leave and Keel sticks around and he continues to investigate these sightings. So like Keel and and the uh the reporter of the town Mary Heyer, like they they basically are like a duo going around town. The thing if you remember from the first episode on this like he he doesn't trust Mary Heyer at first. Like he believes he's met like a lot of people like them who just like sensationalize stories. But what he finds out is that this woman, she almost remi- reminds me of like what you would expect a sheriff to be in, in a movie or something. You know, and that's exactly what I was going to say is I thought she was like the sheriff of the town. I didn't realize she was just a, a news reporter. I think that happens in the movie. Um, I think in the movie, she's uh, a sheriff. Um, isn't she equally as questionable about Keel though, as he is about her? I think she's kind of like, is is he the real deal or can I trust him or well I think Mary Hire and I love talking about her because I feel like she is a hero and these kinds of people are heroes and the reason that we associate them with sheriffs is because and I don't know was she a sheriff maybe not <laughs> Connie her name is the character's name is Connie Mills Maybe she's also a reporter. Maybe. I don't. I don't remember. But but the reason that these people are heroes is because in small town, especially with this phenomenon, one thing we're not doing 
even if this turns out to not be UFO, like uh, things from another planet at all, one thing that we're not going to do is ridicule people who have scary and sort of life-changing experiences. And one thing in a small town, like we're going to cover this incredible story of this one farmer and this mom of two that like everybody thinks she's crazy. But the thing is like she's just – she's been plagued by experiences that like her story is a complete nightmare. Um, And then her cows – like her cattle gets destroyed. Like – like, so she's, who can people like this farmer turn to and say this to? Like, pretty much nobody. Who's going to want to listen to this? The second I tell somebody we do a UFO podcast, there's like a weird silence where I feel like they expect me to say more. And I just kind of like tell them, well, like, if you want to know more, let me know. But like, but I'm not like trying to convince anybody. And I think it, it's different. I mean, these people in these towns, like where this happens, like, they don't want to be ridiculed. They don't know who to tell. If they tell the police, the police are not going to help them. Right. So you leave it to somebody like Mary Heyer who will listen to them and collect their stories. And John Keel turns out to be somebody like Mary who will listen, collect their stories. So then, therefore, instead of having some hotshot journalist from New York City who's just there to use them to sell a story or um, some crazy reporter from a small town that is also sensationalizing or ridiculing or, or making things up, you have two really honest people, two really intelligent people who are just running around all over the place trying to figure out what's going on and talking to everybody. So right. their, their experiences are just something out of a just out of a crazy movie. Like they basically start experiencing tons of UFO sightings, tons. And I'll give you an example of one. Um, At one point early on when John Keel gets there, him and officer Harold Harmon, they slip away to the Gallipolis ferry on the night of March 31st. As soon as they get down to where the ferry is, they see a number of bright star-like objects fitting the sky, moving in zigzag movements. Two local teenagers are sitting on it. So this is like crazy stuff that's happening in this area during this time. So everybody's like out. Everybody's like watching this stuff. Like people are like, this is like a, like a thing. This is like a flap, I guess you would call it. Like this is a huge cluster of experiences that people have. So he, there's two local teenagers sitting on nearby hilltop. They have a bonfire going. He tells them to turn it out because he says that bright lights repel the UFOs. So any, any other kind of source of light for some reason repels them. And I wonder why that is, right? Why would yeah. light do that to them? That you get this impression. It might attract them. Yeah, you I get mean, this impression that UFO they're. Stories, yeah, like when cars flash their lights at the UFO and then it like comes, goes right over their car and is like scanning them or whatever, you know. I'm but. glad you said that because that kind of happens here. <laughs> so. You always do that. You always have like, you're always like right on the money. I Um, grabbed the book while you were sleeping and I read it and then I whispered it into your girlfriend's ear so she would dream about a creature. Oh my God. Did you? (laughs) Well, if I woke up in the middle of the night and saw you instead of the Mothman, I would, I would be incredibly relieved, but I would, but I would scream just as loud. I was going to say, I'd be just as terrified. So, okay, so here we are. Uh, this is like, this brings us on the scene of like early, like John Keel's like in this town, like 
all hell is breaking loose. Literally hell is breaking loose. It's like someone broke open the Pandora's box and it's everywhere in this town. So at this point, he tells the teenagers to turn off the light. The police radio, because he's with this officer, is static. Get this. There was a fire at like the local area, like a local police building right before Kiel gets there. And it, it basically destroys the radio transmitter no device for all of the cops in the area. So while this it is wasn't happening, the teenagers bonfire fire. How convenient! No, it wasn't the teenagers. It was, it was like it was like perfectly executed for them to destroy their ability to the police the ability to contact each other. So the yeah. the the cop is not able to get anybody on the radio. Obviously, cell phones didn't exist yet. Cell phones didn't exist. I love pointing that out. Um, on the hilltop, they see two purple blobs for several minutes, and suddenly. After seeing these purple blobs, they they see the entire forest below them light up in like a purple glow. There's no, I mean, it's like, it almost seems like a fairy kind of activity. It lights up purple. Like how freaky would that be? They just sat, him and Mary Heyer and the officer, they just sat staring at this. Um, They reached a hilltop that they had visited the night before. Uh, There was a single farmhouse on the hill the people who lived on this single farmhouse in this area, they go to bed, for some reason it says they go to bed every night at 9.30 because they get up early, which I'm je- jealous of. That's, that's so organized of them. Um, <laughs> but the, ho- the whole area was dead. A few minutes after they arrived. Quiet, not like deceased. Everyone was, no. Yeah, it was quiet. <laughs> Mary pointed out a small reddish light on a steep wooded hill south of their position. It's a red light that appears to be blinking on and off, bobbing up and down. They watch it breathlessly. Suddenly the farmhouse in front of them, by the farmhouse in front of them, they see an object that's square or rectangular that could not be mistaken for a star, like rise above the trees. And it it disappears and then it reappears. And they can kind of make it out. Like a lot of the sightings in Point Pleasant at this area, people can kind of make out that there are like windows on these devices, but they can't see that clearly, you know, which which is very like weird. Like he thinks he sees a being there. Mary thinks she sees like two, two parts of an object. She doesn't see like one object with a window. It's Gossamer, the Looney Tune. <laughs> Imagine. They expect this object to land directly in front of them and for like creatures to just come out and be like, take us to your leader. That doesn't happen. Keel flashes his flashlight at them a few times Uh and the craft moves out of the way. It tries to get out of the way. And it looks like every, and then Keel starts flashing his flashlight at the other stars that are moving around and they start exhibiting this, I guess uh, people who see UFOs sometimes describe this falling leaf motion. I mean, I'm sure if we sat and watched a lot of UFO videos, we would see it. But you can kind of imagine it. Yeah. Like where it's just not moving the way a plane does, you know? That makes me think of the feather scene. Sorry, from Forrest Gump. You know that? Uh, You know what would be cool? A Forrest Gump movie where he gets kidnapped by aliens. How fucking... That would be hilarious. I don't know if I should be out here with yous. Okay, so Miss Hire leaves him at 1230, right? And then an hour later at about 1.30, Keel has his best sighting of a UFO ever. Ready? This is, this is Keel's UFO story. 
Um, I mean, he's seen he's seen like lights and stuff like that. Of course, nobody's contacted as much as Kiel. Well, that's not true. But like Kiel has a lot of crazy contact, indirect contact. But like this is like a UFO sighting. He sees a clearly defined circular object suddenly come down from the sky and it passes parallel to his car. He said mm. it was so colorful that it burned into my memory. He says the greenish upper surface was topped by a bright red light, reddish portholes or circular lights around the rim. The colors were so brilliant, they were almost unearthly, he says. Mm. It disappeared behind some trees to the left, and I felt it was like really close. It was a few hundred feet from my car. Yeah. Although it had been in view for several seconds, I never even thought about picking up my movie camera on the seat beside me. I He's like, listen, he's like, I had three very interesting reactions to this sighting. I love how much he observes even his own behavior with the phenomena. He says, first of all, he's like, I'm used to prowling graveyards and TNT areas alone late at night. Well, we covered a story where he goes, uh, I don't know if we covered this. Well, he he goes with the couple with with the the couples that kind of see the Mothman first, <clears throat> or one of the couples, and then at some point he's like in this like TNT style area and the TNT area with them. One of the yes. one of the girls. Did we cover this story? One of the girls has a sees like the Mothman in like the wall, but but it's not clear that he was actually there. She just kind of has this fear and sees it everybody gets scared keel does not get scared keel in his words he's like i'm not a hero he's like i just didn't share their fear which i love that line you know such a badass line and later on keel actually goes back to that site alone i mean what kind of pants wacko and <laughs> what kind of a person does it take to go back to a place like this alone and he and when he goes back he ends up passing through, he doesn't see the Mothman or anything, but he ends up passing through a weird space in the road where he feels an intense amount of fear. And then he mm. he he leaves the area, passes through it again, intense amount of fear. So he's like, what is happening in this little area that's like this patch of like terror that you experience? And he he believed it had to do with like ultra ultrasonic waves were in that area that were creating that for him. So he Energy, says, baby. so this is that guy and his reaction to seeing this incredible UFO. He says he was scared. He says, I was scared to death. Wow. My first thought was to start the car and to get the hell out of there. But I managed to brace myself. I locked the doors. Like, that's going to help. Second, <laughs> I was watching the object and I heard a sizzling or hissing sound. Mm. Give me your best UFO hissing sound. Ooh. Oh, okay. That's like Jim. It turned into parcel talk. That's like Jim Carrey inside of the UFO. Chicago. Oh okay. Chicago. <laughs> so he hears this hissing sound. And then the next morning, what happens to him? His eyes are sore and reddened. He gets a mild case of conjunctivitis, pink eye, for several oh, damn, days. Damn, he got pink eye. So Keel got his old. I mean, he did say that the image was burned into his eyes. So. Yeah, imagine if this was like a Disney ride, like, come on down. Like, we're going to scare the crap out of you. And then, uh, and then you know. 
Later, we're going to give you pink you eye. Pink eye. Yeah, it's fun for the whole family. Don't worry. We got a kitty version of the pink eye. It only lasts an hour. Um, oh, God. <laughs> so he has this genuine experience. Um, here's something interesting. These are like the stories. These are like the little novellas, the little moments, the little stories that happen surrounding the Mothman conspiracy in terms of the UFOs, in terms of Keel being there with Mary Heyer. So at one point, 2 a.m. on another night, he this is what he writes in his notebook. He's like, I returned to that parking position, uh, a position where he had seen lights or activity before, and he wasn't scared, but he was anxious. At that point in time, he realizes that there's no sign of the moon, but there's supposed to be. Him and Mary Heyer see like a reddish glow appear at some point, your, you know, your standard reddish glow. And then it like disappears behind some trees. The pink eye glow. <laughs> the, the source of the pink eye. They said this light was red and large. We both thought we could see a human figure moving on the hill. So like... This is akin to like there are UFO sightings and then you'll have like Bigfoot pop up in the area or vice versa. Right. Like you see these mysterious figures kind of pop up around this, these crafts. So this was right after he saw that UFO. Um, Yes. This is like, this is like within those days. The, these, same. these, oh, okay, this, okay. this time period where he first gets to it this town. It wasn't the same night though. No. They say this object is red and large that they see him and Mary Hyde this night at 2 a.m. It's freaking Gossamer. And it's not. <laughs> and then he, they think they see a human figure on the hill. A few minutes later, they get super embarrassed because they realize, somehow they realize that it's the moon that they were looking at. So oh, wow. he admits that, like, this is a bit strange. Like, we should have been able to tell that this was the moon, like, but it was the moon somehow. So, Why would um, the moon be that low, too? Or I guess it was behind a hill. Like so he goes back the next day because he's so thorough. He goes back the next day to just confirm that the moon looks like this. He goes back. He's like, he's like, I want to just see the moon rise on like the next night just to see what it looks like. He goes back that following evening. He checks the papers for, <laughs> because he had to check the papers, not his cell phone, for like when the moon is supposed to come up and what's going to happen. Oh, that's hilarious. And guess what? The moon never shows up. It's supposed what? to be it there. Cloudy? It's a clear sky. It was cloudless, star-filled night, and the moon just wow. doesn't make an appearance. He says he stays yeah, into the cool. area until 3.30 in the morning, and the moon is just conspicuously absent, he says. And then he turned around, and he was like, damn, it was behind me the whole time. <laughs> it was in my hotel room under my bed. Any scientist would have just been like, he's a dummy, right? And like, like maybe not any scientist, because if a scientist were to read John Kill's work, they wouldn't insult him. But like, but like anybody might, anybody might say like, okay, like he's just, you know, whatever. It's his mistake, right? There's no way the moon is missing. Right. But if we are in a simulation, if reality itself is something that we don't even understand, and there's a lot of weird things regarding the proportion of the moon and it's... If we are in a simulation or something like that, then the creatures that are messing with John Keel, that are highly aware of John Keel's existence, that are highly aware that they're investigating him, that investigating them, what if they could just like turn off the moon? Or what if they could just mess with his mind and prevent him from seeing it? You know? Like Ooh, that's free. They could just mess with his reality. 
You know, you you'll see what right. I like. Had he gone with anyone else, they would have been like, "It's right there, John." Yeah, He's like I can't see it. <laughs> and that kind of ties into what we're going to talk about a little bit later, which which has a lot to do with hypnosis and like different aspects of hypnosis. So, um, I like the idea that maybe they they turn the moon off to fuck with him, and I like the idea, or like whoever's controlling the moon, like they just telepathically call them, or like I need you to turn off the moon. It'll only be for an hour. I promise. So 3.30, he leaves this area. Sheriff Johnson, Deputy Halstead, Mary Heyer, and I go back to the Five Mile Creek Road. This is an important road with with this whole this whole situation. They go back Wait, to it's look- it's called Creep Road? Creek. Where I'm from, we call it Crick, so it'd be Crick Road. <laughs> really? Yeah. All right, say Five Mile Creek Road. Five Mile Creek Road. Yeah, but you just said half of the word cricket. That's not creek. Mm, crick. Crick. I like it. I like it. So uh, at this point, it's like 3.30 in the night. They leave this uh, area where he has this, where, where the whole moon thing doesn't happen. And Sheriff Johnson, Deputy Halstead, Mary Heyer, uh, and John Keel go back to the Five Mile Creek Road. They're basically, they're seeing these things and they're trying to go back to see if they see them again. Right? They want to make sure it's not like a fluke. It's not like whatever it is. They want to go back to see if they can record, if they can continue to document, bring other witnesses. So they go there. The uh, deputy brings a Geiger counter. Johnson follows in his car. And suddenly Johnson's radio springs back to life. It starts emitting police calls from the adjoining county. Yeah, even though there was a giant fire at the police. Even though, well, yeah, and even though the radios, well, get this. The amazing thing is that the radio was off when it was emitting these noises. Like a lot of the phone calls and stuff these people are getting, it doesn't matter if it's on. It's like whatever, whatever can create an electronic, like if you need this thing plugged in in order to create, to, to at least be able to create electrical impulses to create sound or visuals like i guess in this case we're specifically talking about sound it doesn't need that it can just use the receiver and you know i guess just create those waves with its own energy wow so you asked me if there were a lot of sightings in other places like we covered a mothman sighting in new york a lot of these ufo sightings that are happening men in black stories that are happening in neighboring areas of south uh like south of charleston um, mm-hmm. different parts of West Virginia. They're Mothman. You asked me if Mothman stories uh, before we started, like, um, were happening in other parts, and they are. Like, there's still Mothman stories to this day. I, I believe there's a book about Michigan Mothman sightings. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, a whole book. Yeah, and, uh, and I don't it's recent. Yeah, it's a recent book. It would be cool to follow up on the Mothman maybe and do like more recent stuff, like because this happens yeah, in the absolutely. 60s. You know, it's part of me wonders like is it happening because there are ley lines or there's some sort of something weird happening with the history of this yeah. area or does it have the ability to just move because it's happening in other places? And I think both of those things are true. Okay, so well, we've talked about in the past how entities could be attracted to any kind of like sonic force or any, you know, like um, they because a lot of sightings happen around uh, like you know, atomic bomb testing, nuclear warfare sites, that kind of stuff. So, what was happening in Point Pleasant? They had that like TNT area, you said, so maybe that was triggering some kind of 
you know, sonic waves that was. Not only does it have that TNT, right? And that whole, uh, because it was used as an ammunition storage facility. I think it was World War II. But also there's some ancient West Virginian and and in Ohio too, some ancient sites in this area. Hmm. And and we'll get back to that, but like, like pre any humans that we know existed, like, Okay. In the, like this is but this is beyond the nomadic Native Americans of the United States. Like this is like before really? that. This is remember we talked about there was this area of West Virginia wasn't even populated by the Native Americans. They didn't go near it because they 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 claimed that something else right. was there. You know, so um, so this we this land is already taken. Yeah, weird, right? So he says, every night I went to the hill at Five Mile Creek Road. This would be great to go to this road. Sometimes alone, sometimes accompanied by a few others, like I was saying. And every night I saw a variety of strange aerial objects. Only two airplanes passed over, but regularly. Like every night at 11 p.m. and at 2 a.m. Each night between 3 and 8, unidentified stars appeared. Any other person out there might say that was just a star, like a casual observer. Like we, we wouldn't notice, right? We might just be like, we, we're like on our way to the movies or whatever it is. Like we're not paying attention. It looks like a star. It's probably a star, right? The thing is, when you're seeing these objects, when it's overcast out, when the clouds are out, then you realize that these things are below the clouds. They're in our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So Keel is very, like, keen on. Like what's happening in the sky will determine like where the altitude also of what where these things are. There are some weird experiences where the UFOs or the orbs will turn into a plane or vice versa, go from a plane and turn into an orb. It, it's a curious thing that he saw happen where these stars would sometimes, these phony stars, he called them, they would remain in their fixed positions or then sometimes they would move. Uh, sometimes a plane would fly over and suddenly dim or its lights would go out and then the plane would reappear again. Like he sees, he witnesses this UFO go into a cloud, right? At one point. And then he witnesses a plane come out a bit later. So it's like, wow. that doesn't make any sense. Like if there was a plane, he would have seen the plane shadow cast over the land. He would have seen it go into the cloud. Planes don't stop for a little while, get a cup of coffee and then take, off you know like that that doesn't happen so he sees these weird like transformation happen that that sort of would make you question yourself more than anything yeah i'd be questioning my own sanity like yeah i even seen he's like sometimes he doubted the fact that they were spaceships from andromeda you know and he he tried to find a rational explanation for this stuff dr donald menzel it's not just all uh Heineck, you know, he he was a Harvard astronomer at the time. He was advocating this air inversion theory, contending that the lights are just ordinary, like, it's light kind of like reflecting off of other things. And he says this theory wasn't, this theory wasn't workable with Five Mile Creek because there weren't any light sources. There weren't enough light sources to create this. Where is the light coming from? If it's not coming from them, it has to be coming from somewhere. So three or four days um, after his monumental UFO sighting, his monumental UFO sighting when it pulls up next to him, <laughs> Mary Heyer says, you know, there's something I've been meaning to tell you. She said hesitantly. She says, I don't know why, but it always seems to slip my mind. 
That night I left you early, the night you saw that colored disc. When I got to Route 2 and started for Point Pleasant, I saw a big globe of light right on the river. Couldn't figure out what it was, but I didn't stop. The funny thing is, she says, I completely forgot. And then later on, when I remembered, I forgot again. Like, she can't understand why she kept forgetting about this. It's, like, super convenient, right? Like, somehow she's just always forgetting to tell him. And she has a really good memory. So now we're going to dive into the story of that farmer I mentioned. That woman whom, like, this story is incredible. And it also, none of us want to have these experiences. (laughs) You don't want your life intercepted by this phenomenon. Like, you don't want to go looking for it. You don't want to bring it to you because there are consequences. If you go hunting for what goes bump in the night, it's going to go hunting for you, you know? So take the case in Ohio. Ohio, in a town directly across from the Gallipolis Ferry, West Virginia, the area that we've been exploring, this uh, woman, uh, she hears that John Keel is in the area, so she finds him at his motel. He's staying at the Blue Fountain. And which is on the outskirts of Gallipolis. So uh, they arrange a meeting and he meets her. She has a very responsible job. She insists on being anonymous. So they meet at a private office at a major company that she works for. He calls her Mrs. Bryant, right? Mrs. Bryant is a reserved, well-spoken, middle-aged woman. He shows her, he says, his parcel of credentials and she relaxes. Uh, It's obvious that she's been through a lot. He can tell she's been through like hell and um, people have laughed at her before about this. So he assures her, I'm not going to laugh at you. And he shows her his credentials as a journalist, as a writer, as an author. And so he's like, okay. She says, last November, she's like, I think it was the second or the third. I was out behind, I think her job, getting ready to go home. It was seven or eight o'clock. She says, when there suddenly was a little flash, like a camera flash going off directly above me. She says, then I saw a thing, some kind of flying machine. She was frozen with fright. She says, the thing landed right there in the parking lot, not 20 feet away from me. It was like a big cylinder. Anyway, it didn't make any noise. It just drifted down and stopped. She says she couldn't move. And so she's like, I couldn't move. I just started praying. And then she says, she sees two men come out of this vehicle. They walk over to me. The the lady, Miss Bryant, looks at Keel like expecting him to laugh. And Keel doesn't laugh. And so he says, What did what did they look like? And she says they were just normal sized, normal looking men. Their skins were a funny color, she says. They were dark. Maybe like they were like heavily tanned. Like heavily tanned. Um, she's like the light there was pretty bad. He asked them if they were African American. She said they're not African American. There, he says. She says their faces were pointed, pointed noses, pointy chins, high cheekbones. She says there was an evil look about them. She says I was afraid they were going to rob me or attack me. He asks how were they dressed. Keel leans back and he's smoking his pipe. I don't know why I added that in there. It's just people don't do people don't do that anymore. So <laughs> it's kind of cool. Good imagery. Come on. <laughs> he puffs on his pipe, and she says, "As near as I can tell, they were wearing some sort of coveralls, something like a uniform." I had to look up what a coverall was. You, oh, like 
overalls. But it's not like like Oshkosh Bagosh overalls. It's a no. It's like a, it's like a plumbing. Outfit. Exactly. It's, all one it's like a onesie kind of thing, but like for like hey, a guess worker. What? It it covers all of you. <laughs> it's not something normal people wear. But it does cover all. Like Mike Myers, I think Mike Myers wears. Oh yeah, you know only cool Isn't people. That, like, green, yeah, you know green zippy suits. You can't see any of them. <laughs> I love that you just said Michael Myers wears them. Exactly. These people have dressed like Michael Myers. <laughs> well, that's why she felt frightened, and they looked evil. The aliens just like before Michael Myers comes out. Michael Myers is obviously like an alien, and they're just like, "Come here, let's get you dressed." Let's get you. He never dies. Let's get you sorted out. Exactly. So he must be uh-huh. some sort of supernatural demon or something. Okay. So she says they're wearing coveralls. What do they have to say? He asks her. Like, she says it was all really silly. They asked me my name, where I was from, what I did for a living. Um, she said it was really hard to understand their voices. They were. They had some sort of a sing-songy, high-pitched voice. It was like she said it was like listening to a phonograph or a record played at the wrong speed. So they were high pitched. That's so specific. Very specific. They, she said, they kept asking me, right? Like, yeah. where are you from? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a living? Ooh, that's giving me the jeebers. I don't like that. <laughs> they kept asking me for the time. They said, "What is your time?" Two or three times they asked her, "What is your time?" They they go back into the cylinder and they take off. And then she can move wow, again. Wow, really? Yeah. So they paralyzed her to ask her what her time is. Maybe they didn't understand. They don't understand the concept of time. Like time doesn't exist to them the way it does to us. <gasps> Am I saying things? You're saying things that are exactly right. Like their <laughs> relationship to time might be different, literally. That's why yeah. that would explain really, really keen, really, really keel observation there. So did it make her like really question her life? She was like, "What is my time?" Well, it scared the crap out what of her. What is my time? It scared the crap out of her. How did he find this person, by the way? She seeks he, him like, out. She hears that he's in oh, town. Oh, okay. So Got it's it. a small town. Word gets out uh, that that there's this that, like a journalist from New York that's taken right. everybody seriously. So, like I said, like we said initially, which is really great, is like these are two people that like all the people in town that are scared and like excited, like they have someone they can tell this to. It's amazing how much in life we just need someone to talk to. Like you don't need someone to solve your problems, but you need someone to listen. A couple days later, he hears of a man that had a similar thing happen to him, Keel says. His name was Woodrow Derenberger, which is the guy that has the experience ah. with cold. So you see how all of this is out of order with the book? Like pretty much like we kind of right. get back to before the cold story, before the Mothman at this point in time. Like that's like somewhere towards the middle, last half of the book. I wonder what the point is for for like hopping around all the time like that. I think his that's just the way his mind works. Like his mind is okay. complex. And if you read it, I highly recommend everybody read it because – it's such a great book and it's it's kind of impossible to explain how important it is and like how many stories there are and like how he covers all this stuff like he doesn't he doesn't dumb it down i don't think he lets you have it all either he doesn't really yeah. like let us have everything that he's thinking but he he kind of has been saving this stuff in his mind and with his research for a long time like he would never tell any of these insights to anybody out of context and stuff but when he writes his book 
he writes his book and he 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 kind of mm-hmm. lets everyone have his his take on what's going on. Okay, so he's meeting the lady again and they have a conversation about Woodrow Derenberger. And he asked her, like, like, do you know anything about the story? And she says, I heard something about it on the radio. She asked him, did he ever see those men again? Keel says, he did see those men again. She looked relieved. Well, she says, I saw them again too. She says, oh, I wow. saw them in broad daylight, walking down Main Street in Gallipolis. This time they were dressed in normal clothes. They looked like anybody. And they nodded to me when I passed them. She's like, I got scared all over again really scared she's like that's when i went to the police and told them what i saw they laugh the police laughs at her and tells her she's just imagining things she 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 shakes her head sadly she says you see i've been to the police before about my cattle rustlers i guess they think i'm some kind of a nut she's like i went to the fbi also they came to my place but they couldn't find anything and she's like after that she says somebody tapped my phone so now we get it. Now we learn that she, this isn't the first time she's interacted with something because she's had issues yeah. with her cattle. So she explains what she's what talking kind of about. Issues? And I think that's super yeah. creepy that she sees these beings walking around like normal people. Like this almost seems to me like a really bad dream, like where you see like evil, like just there in the crowd, you know, like, and. They're right. like messing and they, with her. And, it, and they recognized her. They were like, hey. Well, I think they're there to. How you doing? Yeah, they're there to mess with her. You know, you can kind of see that scene in like a film. Like they're there. I think the maybe the whole point of this is the fear. You know, it's the manipulation. It's the it's the reaction they're getting out of her. What is the end goal? You know, it's then? they're they're trying to create fear and paranoia they're also in a weird indirect way communicating with keel because maybe they if they if they if they can see into the future they can see that she's going to tell them at some point you know so it's it's complicated and and it's bizarre but it's it's not as simple as it's not as it's more akin to a bad dream or or something weird with our reality than I think it is. These men are from space. They landed. The next day they got clothes. They went out for lunch. And they happen to see her in the crowd. You know? Um, mm-hmm. It seems like it has a lot to do with perception. And whose perception you're messing with. Um, so she talks about... Between 1963 and 1964, she started to have issues with her cattle. Um, she says, basically, my animals were getting butchered in the field. She's like, whoever they were, they didn't want the choice cuts. They just took the brains, eyeballs, and udders. Oh, what? And the organs, she says. She's like, they basically take all the stuff that we normally throw away. And he asked her, have you ever caught them in the act? She's like, several times. Several times I've caught them. She's like, I've seen them out in the field and I went and I go for my shotgun, but she's like, they always get away. She's like, they're tall. They wear white coveralls, which is kind of stupid, she says, because I can totally see them in the dark. And she says yeah. they, they, they can run and jump and they leap over high fences from a standing start. Oh, hot damn. She's like, and that's kind of like, uh, it reminds me of the first Men in Black, how good that first sequence is where Will Smith is chasing that alien and the alien like jumps really high. Yeah. Um, but this is, 
this is not as cool. Will Smith is not in this story, you know? Um, so her home burns down at one point after these cattle mutilations, maybe because she goes out there with a shotgun and she's like aggressive. Maybe yeah, they, they feel threatened. They're just like, or they're just like, no, like you're not going to threat. Yeah. You're not going to do this to us. We're going to burn your house down, you know? One night, so so this is like this is why I'm saying when I started to preface this with like you don't want this stuff to happen to you because one night after she has a new house, they're in the she's in the new house with her kids. She finds herself unable to move. She's she basically okay. So she builds a new one story ranch house for herself on the same exact site. Maybe that's her first mistake. Oh. <laughs> like yeah, definitely, definitely. Getting, I, getting the hell out I would of move town. to the city like. Literally mm-hmm. right next to a police station. Um, is there anything available next to the police station? Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. So one night in her new house, she wakes up. She finds she's unable to move. She feels a wave of almost overpowering heat as she hears the kitchen door open. She can't move. She feels extremely hot. The kitchen door opens in front of her face. She's like, she has it double locked before going to bed. She lays there helplessly. She sees a tall figure walk through the kitchen and go out another locked door on the side. Oh my God. She's unable to move. She says her children were often freaked out. They would often hear heavy footsteps on the roof, loud metallic clanks. See, it's almost like perception. Like, they want a lot of people to think, like, there's, like, a freaking alien spaceship up there and, like, people are walking around. This is – a lot of people describe this this sound. This house can't be haunted because she just built the damn thing. She just built the damn thing. But maybe the area is. Maybe maybe it's just not a good place to have your house. She's like, after interviewing her, I drove her out alone to her house to talk to her children. The Bryant Farm is quite isolated on a hilly back road. She says it's stood on a knoll overlooking the surrounding fields. She says her teenage son was a down-to-earth boy. He used to do he's he's used to the responsibilities of being the man in the family. He confirms his mother's stories about the rustlers and adds some interesting details. He pointed out some nearby trees. One night he said as he was walking with his mother, he saw a large glowing object hovering directly above the trees. She was scared real bad, he noted. Their telephone often went dead for no reason. Oftentimes, he said, they got calls that just consisted of strange beeping noises, electronic music. Oh. He also mentioned the big gray flying boxcars that often flew over the area at the treetop level. She's like, I wonder how they don't crash. If they flew any lower, they'd have to put their wheels down. She's like, when he examined the little house, he looked at where that other door leads, the one where the tall figure goes out. He's like, there are no steps. It's very steep. There's nowhere to go at that door. He brings up this woman's name to the police, right? And later on, and the police say, oh, that poor woman. She's always seeing things. Just a couple months back, she told us some story of spacemen walking around Gallipolis. Before that, it was cattle rustlers. I was wondering why you said rustlers. I didn't know if that's what she had called them. That's what she calls them. The rustlers. I guess the rustling up the cattle. Right, like a, 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 a an old term. So rustling means like like disturbing. Oh, okay. It means, but not like not mutilating. Doesn't mean stealing mm-hmm. eyeballs. No. <laughs> the wrestlers. You know what that makes me think of? Um, you watch. You told me about that documentary that just recently came out called Skinwalker Ranch. 
about the Utah, the farm in Utah um, with wow. Jeremy Corbel yeah. and and the, all the mutilated farm animals and stuff. And- Sydney, that book is like an entire, the beginning of that book is an entire account of a family on a farm that deal with the most insane stories. So you're absolutely right. They deal with like crafts in their fields, weird objects that look like different things. They end up seeing like wolves that are like, look like dire wolves in their field, like all kinds of crazy shit. What? Chupacabra. Chupacabra. So, he, so these people at Skinwalker Ranch, they see like I think what some of the coolest sightings they have is like these prehis, like these pre. I don't know if you would call them prehistoric, but they definitely aren't related to any of the wolves that we have now. Like they're they're huge, a lot of crazy beings, a lot of crazy things. And George Knapp, that's his name. George George Knapp is the writer, one of the writers of the book. The book is incredible. It's so well written. It is so. It's like a. It's another like just masterpiece of supernatural nonfiction, um, which yeah. seems like an oxymoron, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's George Knapp is an incredible journalist. You know, he's like a John Keel. He writes this incredible book. Jeremy Corbell makes this film about it. Um, that's a very interesting case and maybe a book that we're totally gonna have to cover because I would love to hear your opinion on it. Totally. And there's just a lot of great stories that happen there. But it's a similar situation where the farm, maybe wherever it is, like there's just a just mayhem ensues. And what I love is like the different manifestations of this. Like sometimes it looks like a weird little tin rectangle box, you know? Right. It has mechanical aspects to it. Like, it seems like it has a sense of humor sometimes. But let me tell you, if you want to go see UFOs, if you're interested, then Kiel has a day and a time of the week to go oh. see UFOs. Yeah, really? I swear. And this is actually in his book, Operation Trojan Horse. So, okay, so if you want to see a UFO... Kiel, Kiel has something very important to tell you, right? All of us. And hopefully nobody here. It's on here. a Tuesday. <laughs> no. What, what day of the week do you think they show up the most? What's the weirdest day of the week? Definitely Wednesday. It's Wednesday. He Damn. discovers in his research... And he's saying like April 5th, 1967, it was a Wednesday. He had collected and analyzed. It was a Wednesday when he realizes this, of course. He he had collected and analyzed some 700 UFO reports from 1966 alone. Wow. This is why you can't tell me this guy's full of it when you haven't collected 700 stories and analyzed the data statistically. He's looking at patterns. So he discovers that the greatest number of sightings by 20% take place on Wednesdays. He says he calls it the Wednesday phenomenon. He's like, the events of 1967 conform to this curious pattern also, as the sightings have their flaps. He's like, October 1973, all the sightings were concentrated around Wednesdays, particularly Wednesday, October 17th. He's like, it's weird because these entities, they seem to be ignorant of our time frame and everything. And yet they managed to show up just on schedule. Like, you know, he even like during a lot of the sightings 
where people have during a lot of the moments where people in this in this area have experienced like their TV going off without being plugged in or their radios going off like really crazy poltergeist type stuff he tells them go outside if it's happening at the same time every night he's like go outside and let me know if you see some lights flying in the sky and they go outside and there are lights flying in the sky like this stuff is connected and a lot of it happens on Wednesday. So let me tell you, Wednesday nights, I'm not going anywhere. So. Yeah, you mean like right now? Is it right Wednesday now. today? Oh my God. We record on Wednesday. Right. <laughs> of course, I had thought about that when I was saying this. <laughs> of course, I was aware of this when I was saying this. Wow. He says, like, before he kind of puts the data together, because it takes him a long time to research, put this stuff together, then do analysis. This takes years of his life. This man dedicated most of his life at this point. Well, not most of his life, but most of these amazing research years to this, thankfully, right? He could have been out yeah. there investigating some political scandal or some crap, you know, some human crap. But he instead he was out here trying to figure something out that, that's like so incredibly useful to this mystery. And so he says that this even though- very, like- Jack Jacques Vallée. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're the two, they're two of the greats, you know. So he says, like, before he did put this stuff together, scientists would have laughed and just treated him like he was wrong. But he's like, at some point, a doctor, David Saunders of Colorado University, feeds several thousand sightings into a computer, and he also finds the Wednesday phenomenon. It's the day that produces the most amount of sightings. And guess what time produces the most amount of sightings? Mm, the witching hour, 2 a.m.? All right, guess again. Mm. 2 a.m. on Tuesday? Was close? 2 a.m. Wednesday. I guess it would be 2 a.m. Wednesday. No, that can't be right. So let's try, I don't know, like 8 p.m. sundown? Close. 7? Okay, now guess one more time, even though it's 4. Even hold on, what? hold on. I'm going to think of the time and I'm going to send it to your mind. Ready? Okay, I'm ready. 9.30. Oh, you're so close. It's 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. <laughs> you just, your, your, your clock wasn't going fast enough, so I stopped it at 9.30. I got a little nervous. I started drawing a one and a zero in my head and I got, I got nervous about the power of our minds like fusing oh. as one. Would you have any interest in trying to see ufos i mean yeah how in sydney you're supposed to say no after that crazy oh. story i'm just kidding but like no. like after that crazy story like you're supposed to be smarter than that don't 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 do it i mean i'm not gonna like reach out to them and tell them to like contact me but i wouldn't mind just you know stargazing purposefully and like if anything cool happens or crazy then maybe like, oh, well i was a part of that maybe when we get enough people that enjoy the show we can kind of create like a coalition of people that Ooh. can kind of band together wednesday night facetimes with our fans <laughs> <laughs> at some level there's nothing greater you could ever hope to see than an alien craft you know there's nothing more totally. incredible and beautiful. Mm -hmm. But at another level, if we're not even dealing with aliens, if we're dealing with something stranger, like the Joker of phenomenon, like then 
do we want to see that? If it's like, what if it's, it's not true? Like we can't even believe what we're seeing at some level. You know what I mean? Like, so, but does it make it any less remarkable? Do you remarkable? mean the Joker like, like the Batman Joker, like a villain? <laughs> the or? only reason I, I knew you would pick up on that. The only reason I said that is because I love that line of the, of the Dark Knight where he says, um, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stranger, you know? Um, <laughs> so it's just, uh, it's strange, you know, I like when I like that he references what's strange. I mean, if we're seeing if you get to see an alien craft, that would be extraordinary. But the times that I've dreamed of alien crafts, like in my dreams, I've had the same reaction that Keel has had. And the and you know, dreams are interesting because Unlike a virtual reality video game or something, you know that's fake. In your dream, you don't necessarily realize that you're dreaming. So my reaction to seeing that is genuine in that Which, experience. And, you know, there are arguments that dreams are reality. They're just in a different realm. And, you know, that they are really happening, just not in this when I've When I've had my dreams of UFOs, they've been incredibly colorful they've been like like incredible like rgb style like ready to stream on twitch looking crafts and does they, rgb style mean red green blue yes and it's the style of a lot of led lights and lamps and desk fixtures it's the style that's popular now with streamers and even people decorating their homes and uh, everything. Like I have, you see the lights behind me? Yeah, you got um, a little strip light there. Yeah. Yeah, and I can make them flash uh, RGB. So, I mean, oh, we're, we're, we're talking we about... Party. <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> like these incredible, beautiful colors, but it doesn't amount to like the way Close Encounters of the Third Kind shows it. It doesn't amount to like this extraordinary, beautiful experience a lot of the time. It amounts to something terrifying, you know? It's scary. Mm -hmm. It's scary. But, I mean, I think human beings always, you can't, you can't take that away from us that we're curious about the answers to the biggest questions, you know? We're curious. We've always been curious, you know? So this is John Kill's life at this point in time. He's, he's, his life revolves around Five Mile Creek Road. He's going for these skywatch kind of nights between 3, 4 a.m. He drives back to Point Pleasant. He drives across the rickety old Silver Bridge, he says, into Ohio. He gets a few hours of sleep at the Blue Fountain. This is like one of those incredible moments in time that like you kind of wish you were there. Like you wish you could just drive into town and like have a drink with Keel amidst all of this. You know, it would have been like, I don't know what that's like. That would be like meeting Hemingway in Europe or like, uh, I don't know, like um, meeting Did Kerouac. Did he's still alive? California. No, Keel passed away. Mary Heyer also, Mary Heyer passes away like in 1970 70 or 71. So pretty, oh, early. pretty soon like after the this. Oh, early. Like before the book was even published. This happens. I believe wow. so. Yeah, which is wow. sad. Sad to hear that. But 
but this is just like one of those incredible moments in time. Like, like I don't know, I was going to say like meeting Hunter S. Thompson. On a weekend around this time that he's seeing these events, um, he says that, he, so he, he goes for these, this is his routine, right? Um, Five Mile Creek Road, sky watches at 3 or 4 a.m., goes back to Point Pleasant, drives across the old rickety silver bridge in Ohio, gets a few hours of sleep at the Blue Fountain. <clears throat> Sounds like an ice cream place. Three or four miles south of his secret hilltop, there was a heavily forested ridge. He's like the object with the reddish window, which Mary and I had seen on our first night, seems to have come from this ridge. Each night at exactly 10 p.m., this red glow would appear. And it was around this time that he's driving back to Ohio to check out some of the very weird things that are happening there. And when his one of his all-time favorite stories occurs around this time in the little village of Duncan Falls. He's, he's going to give you the story verbatim from a Mr. Leonard, quote-unquote, Shy Elmore. Mr. Leonard Shy Elmore, who's 72 of Duncan Falls. This is in Duncan Falls, Ohio. Uh, Mr. Leonard, uh, I guess my friends call me Shy, was taking a stroll around 4 a.m. when he encounters a strange building which frightened him badly. He's like, like many elderly people, Mr. Elmore does not sleep well, so he often takes long walks at night. So he was taking a long walk in the middle of the night. He was walking along a road two blocks from his home when he sees a strange L-shaped building that looked like galvanized, like a galvanized iron shed sitting in the middle of a large field. Since he had never noticed this shed before, he walks closer to take a better look and something about it just frightened him. He could not explain why it scared him, but he turned and started to hurry away. And this an is L-shaped what L-shaped building. An like L-shaped capital L. <laughs> I guess yeah. It sounds like it's an uh, L-shaped capital L building in the middle of a field that's never been there before. It looks like galvanized Crazy. iron, like a galvanized iron shed. What would that mean? I wonder. Galvanized iron is kind of the iron that is like pounded into shape, so it's right. like not. It's not all one. Very good. Like. Yeah. I only know that because of catering because, you know, whenever we use the galvanized tubs for like our champagne and stuff, they're like, oh, grab a galvanized tub. And it's got like little divots. and. All That's awesome. It. That's really cool that you know what that means. Silly. That's awesome. <laughs> so it's like a galvanized iron shed. So I guess it, it, it's shiny and metallic, you know, and sitting yeah, in the middle of the right. field. The reason he runs away is because he sees it's dark out, first of all. He says he sees no windows or doors in the shed. And then he claims that he hears a distinct male voice coming from the shed that says, don't run, don't run. Ew. The, the voice called. That would make me run faster. He's like, I didn't exactly run. He's like, but I walked really fast. He's I, I'm, as, I'm old as fuck. I'm not going to run. He's like, he told me not to run. Told me not to run. He hurried home, got his rifle. He returns to the site. And to his astonishment, the shed is gone. The incident upset him very much, and according to his wife, he was a nervous wreck for several days. He decided to call the sheriff, report what he had seen. The sheriff promised to come out and take a look, but never did. He told he tells the story in a direct manner, without embellishments, without even speculations. Nobody ever goes to talk to Mr. Elmore. So, you know, a lot of people who have these weird experiences, they just, nothing happens. You know, there's no, there's no real MIB, like, you know 
faction that's out there helping people and zapping people or whatever. They're kind of the good guys in those movies, you know? Yeah, they are. So when he shows, so Leonard shows him the field where this happened and he's, Keel is kind of weirded out because this is right next to the Duncan Falls Elementary School. He says there's an unusual number of sightings and 14 events concentrated around schools. He says the largest percentage of witnesses usually consist of children between the ages of 7 and 18. He's like, another statistical oddity is the majority of the adults who claim their autos were pursued by UFOs or monsters. Guess who they are? They're school teachers. They're teachers that normally specialize in abnormal children. Um, I don't know if he means like kids with special needs. Yeah. Special education. Very bright. Oh, he's saying that they're either very bright or they're mentally deficient. So we have a different term for that these days. (laughs) Abnormal children. So this is why I was so interested in West Virginia census takers who were constantly going around like these men in black type of characters asking for the numbers and the ages of the children living in the area. Like creepy. Like why are they after kids? Super creepy. He says that, Keel says that at this point, there's so much weirdness happening in this area that people will believe anything. So at one point, the word gets out that Woodrow Derenberger is pregnant. And it like people believe it. They just believe, oh, yeah, of course he's pregnant now. He's pregnant by the aliens. A pregnant man was no more absurd, he says, than a winged behemoth or the gigantic illuminated forms that were cruising up and down the area. Some people even claim, some people even had more outlandish claims. They were claiming that gypsies were marching across their property at night. They said there were men in bright reflective clothing and women in ankle length dresses. They said they all had long hair and dark Asian faces. North of Gallipolis, Ohio, he impulsively stopped on an isolated road. Uh, he, he hears of something that happens at this house. He goes up to the house and he says to the guy, he says, he's like, hello. He's like, I just was in the area and I thought I would stop by and ask you some questions. The guy says, I know who you are. I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of here. Puzzled, Keel tells Mary this. And she visits the farm later on to figure out what happened. So she visits the farm on another day. Keel's waiting in the car. Like, Keel, finally the farmer and, the, and Mary start laughing and they call John over and they say, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna believe this. So the farmer apologizes to Keel and says, but 10 minutes before you got here the other day, I got a phone call. It was a neighbor of mine that said he was calling me to warn about a crazy man, a really dangerous type with a beard that he said that he had just seen him and that I shouldn't have anything to do with him. Keel has, wow. Keel has a beard. This kind of reminds me of that story from the last one where, you know, the, the couple heard the guy knock at late at night and he was scary and he asked for a phone. And it was John Keel. And it was John Keel. I mean, it's it, Keel explains that having a beard was not a very common thing. Having a beard and being well-dressed was not very common. Having a beard, being well-dressed, knocking on people's doors in the middle of the countryside was not common. Yeah. It's, it spooked people out. So this guy gets a call right before John Keel shows up. And then Mary Heyer like says, all right, she says to the guy, she's like, tell him the rest of the story. So he says, well, about a week ago, something scared my cows real bad. You know, we ain't told anybody about this, Miss Hire. You aren't going to put it in the paper, are you? And she says, not if you don't want us to. 
She's like, come here, let me show you something. He leads them to a field behind the barn. There's this 30-foot circle of scorched earth on the hillside. He's, And Kiel says, I had seen several of these quote-unquote fairy circles before. Interesting that he uses that term. He says the, the cows stampeded. They were so scared, they went right through the electric fence. It's an electric fence, the guy says. Do you know what it would take to, to make cows uh, like run through an electric fence? He says that he goes out, he sees a big red glow sitting in the field. And it's, he's like, I have to say, it scared me half to death. He's like, I ran in my house to get a gun. Didn't take me a, more than a minute, but when he came back, the thing was gone. This circle was all that was left. And he's like, it took him all night to round up any of the cows. Kiel says, were any of the cows missing? And he's like, no. But he's like, Herc, he's like, Hercules, my old big collie dog, ran off that night and we haven't seen him since. And he's like, say, you don't think that that thing took Herc, do you? And then Kiel says, no, it's probably just some electric phenomenon. And then the guy says, well, he says, Herc will probably come back. He says, I hope so. We sure love that dog. And he thinks about it. He's like, electrical, huh? Let me show you something else. He leads them to his barn and shows them a brand new circuit box. He says, I've, I've had to put this in the next day so I could run my milker. The old box, imagine having a milker. The old box completely burned out. In fact, it was melted, like somebody had put a wielding torch to it. It must have been some kind of an electrical thing, he says lamely. The weird thing is that some men from the electric company showed up the next day, and these guys were weird, he says. They fussed around with the transformer on the pole by the road. He's like, I tried to talk to them, but they didn't have much to say to me. Did you know them, Kiel says? Never saw them before. Come to think of it, they didn't have an electric, regular electric truck, just a panel truck. Kiel says, would you know them if you saw them again? He's like, sure would. They was foreigners. He says they were Japanese. So, okay, so he says, all right, well, tell me about these guys, right? What do they look like? How are they dressed? He's like, oh, you know, ordinary coveralls. He's like, I did know. What? Coveralls, our new favorite word. It's the word of the day. I did notice their shoes, though. They had funny shoes, very thick rubber soles. I guess when you work around electricity, you need isolation. Mary shuddered perceptively. Say, you don't know these fellows, he asked. Mary says, well I, kn- well, I saw a man with thick-soled shoes once, but Kiel cuts her off and says, we got to go. So Kiel doesn't give these people information. He's not going to tell them, oh, yeah, right. by the way, this is their, I don't know, their creatures <sighs> from who knows where that are haunting everybody in town. Maybe they're the town's new electricians and, like, you know, like, why has everybody got to treat them so weird? Like, maybe the most important thing that we have discussed on the podcast at all. Like, this is this is so strange in a way for me because I think as much as I'd like to believe that I'm open-minded, part of me still believes that, especially with the whole Bob Lazar story that we are dealing with, like, physical crafts and, like, maybe they're not all, they're not all from another dimension maybe some of them are from another planet or something right Right. part of like i don't believe that it's all just from earth but but so keel this is where he's ahead of his time because he's starting to get into where i think this goes in the next book the eighth tower 
he's like starts to go into kind of what he thinks might be going on here. And it's a lot weirder than UFOs from another planet. So he's like, let's break down what UFO lore is. He says, basically, you have three components to UFO lore. You have sighting reports. They're usually poorly investigated by amateurs. They're based entirely on often inaccurate newspaper stories. He says, we have testimony from the contactees, and we have messages received through spirit mediums and ESP. He's like, and in recent years, a new element has been added by scientists themselves. He, he describes it as exobiology, basically the belief that because there are zillions of other, uh, there are zillions of other habitable planets out there, therefore there must be intelligent life out there. And Kiel pushes against this a little bit, which is surprising. He says that, listen, out of the nine planets on our solar system, only three are even solid. Only one of these are infested with life. He uses the word infested, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. He's like, it takes a long list of environmental and chemical conditions for this to exist on one planet. He's like, it's just such an insanely improbable amount of coincidences. He's like, you can go back as far as you can like count. Like whether we're talking about Enoch becoming the first space traveler, whether we're talking about the great Swedish mathematician Swedenborg, who went wandering through the cosmos in the 1700s, whether we're talking about Denton giving a tour of Venus in the 1860s, George Adamski, Howard Menger, several others that claim to have visited the moon preceding our moon landing, you know, having their own experiences, collecting moon potatoes, like just having all of these experiences on other planets. Kiel says that in a way, like we're kind of Scientists now by saying like, and this is what I was talking about earlier, that like, I think as a society, we're preparing ourselves for the reality of creatures from another planet. Like we are, like we're believing now that these New York Times reports, all of this, we're collectively creating space in our minds for this as a possibility. But Kiel thinks it's something else, that this is, it's too, it's too funny. It's too elusive. It's too similar to another kind of phenomenon that he's familiar with. You know, he's talking about this case where a very tall and boneless, eyeless space robot in a time capsule appears in front of a Mrs. D. Long. It reaches her home and oh. uh, it she has this weird sighting of this weird creature and then her phone starts to ring. Later, several recorded conversations she has talks with this being, right? This being shows up and then starts calling her. This being says that he basically explains the universe to her, right? So let me take this back. So Kiel delves into this story that's a great example of where he's coming from. He says, Wednesday, July 26th, 1967, Mrs. Maris DeLong and Michael Kisner were driving in a park near California's big to Junga Canyon when they hear a bodiless voice that instructs them to watch out for something unusual. There's a flash of light in the sky and a glowing disc 20 feet in diameter appears. Soon they were chatting with Cronin, the very tall and boneless eyeless space robot encased in a I time hate capsule. That description. I know. That's so weird. Boneless and Bone- eyeless. Boneless and eyeless. Okay, as soon as Miss DeLong reaches her home after this experience, the phone starts to ring. Cronin's giving her a call. He's like, you got a second? Uh, He's like, let me explain the universe. Uh, 
So she's never heard of Cronus. So she's never heard of Cronus. Cronus, like you're saying, is, is well, here he says it's the Roman god of time. Another yeah, leader po- of the Titans. Another popular entity in occult circles for centuries is Ashtoreth and the, the Phoenician goddess of love. A character called Ashtar has been communicating with people for a long time. Ashtar, like cosmic command or something. So there, these names start to become like weird clues. Like where are they getting their names from? Uh, right. Woodrow Derenberger's Mr. Cold, I told you, kind of isn't doesn't fit the pattern with a lot of these. It's it's a different kind of name. Where does the name Cold come from? In fact, Kiel says it makes him suspicious of Woody's story, and he had he not talked to other people with similar experiences that night, he might have rejected Derenberger's story altogether. He says in earlier times, fairies, demons, human witches practicing Black Sabbath rites, they chose gravel pits, garbage dumps, cemeteries, crossroads for their appearances. Modern hairy monsters and UFOs select the same sites. In fact, there, we had that injured cold story about him showing up near a gravel pit, and it was like kind of a weird description. We're like, why, why is yeah. that? Why does that matter? So near crossroads and highways still under construction at points where old highways once intersected, you know, there's that old tale of Robert Johnson meeting the devil and learning blues at a crossroads, right? That's the blues legend. Well, that's not so far from like what happens with like witchcraft that for some reason they do happen at crossroads. And I didn't know that Darren Berger's first contact with cold. Guess where it was. It was on a newly completed highway intersection. It was a newly completed highway that was yards from an old intersection across the river. The vast Indian mounds of Ohio stand as a mute testimony of some earlier culture identical to the culture, which constructed the great mounds of great Britain. He says the latter was joined by straight, tracks or ley lines that formed a grid system. He's like, he wonders if the ley lines may not have once coexisted. So there are tiny traces of like these old structures, these old lines, these old roads, but you wouldn't really know, right? These days, modern farmers and builders have destroyed the old artifacts. They've almost destroyed the mounds, the stone towers, when and and this happened when the Europeans like first arrived. So Woody stopped on some cross point. Is he on some cross point of an old ley line network? So here's the other thing: Cold's name is uncharacteristic selection in terms of these funky UFO names. His name comes across the attention of a John Mitchell. John Mitchell, who's studying the British ley lines in the view over Atlantis, says peculiar feature of the old alignments is that certain names appear with remarkable frequency along their roots. Names with red, white, black are common. So are cold or coal or dod or Mary or lay. So you have a name that's consistent with fairy tales, not fairy tales, but fairies, ley lines, folklore, demons, witches, not UFOs. So that's really creepy, you know? And he has a creepy-ass smile that sets him apart from, like, the uh, these other, like, dark-skinned Asian faces. Yeah. 
cold is weird, you know? He shows up in like a weird lantern thing. He is. They all appear human. He speaks telepathically. He speaks telepathically. He introduces Woodrow to all of his family. Like, Cold predicts things that happen. He shows up to help Woodrow. I mean, I'd love to believe that Cold is like a good dude, you know, but. Oh, yeah. I feel like he has good intentions, but that smile, man. But at the same time, later on, these are the same entities that kind of start to scare people. And it's like Keel talks about this phenomenon where they seem like they're good, but then they, they become the bad guys too. So it's almost like this weird trickster spirit that wants to do good things for you, but is also like, it's like, oh, let me save you from this supernatural threat, right? But it is the supernatural right. threat at the same time, right. which is really creepy. Just the idea of that, you know? It's very trickster-like. I said, how very Loki. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's that kind of energy. Trick to God. Tri- that yeah. kind of energy. And just to give you an idea, like, the, you know, they're in 1973 in September, just before the great October UFO wave sprang all over Atlanta, Georgia, a Georgia psychic was in a mental communication with someone named Zandark who identified himself as a member of the United Cosmic Council, a commander-in-chief in in charge of directing technical transmissions uh, via mental telepathy or the combination of mediumistic telepathy under the direction of the Confederation of Cosmic Space Beings. Zandark delivers... His name is Zandark. How are you? Like Yen Dark? Zan with a Z. Zandark. Zandark. He identifies himself as a member of the United Cosmic Council. He basically says to this medium, we come to bring peace. He claims credit for the Sphinx, the pyramids, and other structural phenomena. He complains that contactees are not being taken seriously enough. Each of Zandark's communications begin with the salutation Adonai Vasu. I think Adonai is Hebrew, right? Peace, it will, he translated it as peace be with you and love forever. Wow. Another greeting from another story is Adonisus. Adonisus is a manufactured Roman, romantization of Adonai, which is, yeah, an ancient Hebrew word. Vasu stems from Latin vasus, meaning servant. So Adonai Vasu means servant of God. All Zangart is like, an angel in disguise, he says, in a tongue-in-cheek fashion. So what? What is? where is this stuff really coming from? Because then you can go into a lot of the divine. Kiel, Kiel goes into another explanation for, and I think maybe this is where we'll start to wrap up. Because this, this is an incredible book. Like, there's so many stories in the latter half of the book that are worth checking out. But I really appreciate his conclusions when it comes to this phenomenon. Because it's not what you would think. Like, that stuff about the ley lines and the, the names that are kind of gotten from mythology and stuff, that stuff is, it, it changes the conversation a little bit. Instead of our government preparing for a landing and negotiations with the Galactic Space Council, now it's kind of like, well, who are we dealing with, really? You know, and he continues to push in this direction because he explains that contact T syndrome 
is almost like a reprogramming and process. And he starts to get into how light can be used to hypnotize people. And he explains that the a subject's attention to a riveting pulsing or a flickering of light and intensity is able to basically uh, hypnotize people, help them see things that are not there. A, a hypnotized subject, he, he talks about hypnosis. He says he was an amateur hypnotist. He says a hypnotized subject often thinks they're fully conscious and that the hypnosis isn't working. In the 1940s, science discovered the, the flicker phenomenon, which is that some human brains are extremely responsive to a flickering light. Uh, and that can produce a type of uh, epileptic trance where you can yeah. basically elaborate, see elaborate hallucinations. You know, when you're hypnotized, time can be compressed or expanded. Just the way time is compressed or expanded in a dream. All right, so I'm not going to go into all of the research and science behind what he's talking about here with regards to trance and hypnosis, but it's very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, it definitely is making me think that what if it is an alien entity, but they don't need to show up in a spaceship or any of that stuff? Like, what if it is literally something that doesn't have a physical form that has an instrument, right? It can create an intense amount of light. They, they've known humans f since forever. Maybe we belong to them or they belong to us or we belong to each other. They've known us since forever. They know exactly how to fuck with us. They know exactly how to hypnotize us. They, they just wave their magic wand and do their little light flicker magic trick. And there you are. You're seeing all kinds of crazy things. You're with Indrid yeah. Cold visiting Lanulos, you know, a, a Lanulos, a planet where people are not wearing clothes. It's such a strange, the, the whole Indrid Cold thing is so much more like a fairy story, which I think makes it super cool and fascinating, you know, versus like a lot of the stories that are about people traveling to different planets. So, you know, I really appreciate that Keel, I really appreciate his skepticism. I really appreciate his intelligence. You know, none of us want to hear this. Nobody wanted to hear this back in the day. Nobody wanted to hear that this was akin to witchcraft. Nobody wanted to hear that Bigfoot had to do with UFOs. Nobody wants to hear that the supernatural is not physical, is non-physical. Keel is not going to tell you that there isn't something there isn't some incredible vulnerability that humans have that's being exploited, whether mm -hmm. it comes to hypnosis, whether it comes to perception, whether it comes to belief, you know, all of those things are being exploited. You know, it's, it's like the coolest freaking holographic Disney thrill ride that you never asked for, you know, <laughs> when, when, when it happens to you, like, and, it, and you're not, you're not, it, and you're, <laughs> yeah, and you're not in on the joke, you know, you don't get to, uh, you don't get to go to the uh, Disney restaurant, man, are you, can you tell that I haven't been to Disney World really in, in my life? Have you never been? I, I went when I was a kid, but I don't remember anything. Okay. I mean, there are, there are Disney themed restaurants and, and like hotels. Yeah. Well, speaking of themes, there I saw an advertisement for the new, I don't know if it's a cruise ship or it's basically like a hotel, but you stay in like a Star Wars like cruiser. 
and like oh, you're nice. where you're eating, like there's going to be like instead of people in like Minnie Mouse costumes, they're going to be all dressed up like Star Wars aliens and stuff. So it's going to it's going to it's going to mimic the experience of being in in a Star Wars movie. So all right, so look, so Keel is pushing back on all of us here, and I think that's where this book is ahead of its time. He's saying that like this whole idea that we're this universal acceptance of fictional yeah. space people and and faith in extraterrestrials and this belief that oh life could be everywhere so therefore these have to be that we can't really just go there completely like we have mm-hmm. to we have to reserve some judgment so that we don't look like fools later on which is most likely going to happen anyway And he almost says that the government is doing the right thing because they're not taking it super seriously and they're not falling for the joke in a way, which kills me because it's like the idea that the government has been doing the right thing um, by trying to debunk, downgrade, and ridicule the flying saucers is just not what you expect from this book. It's not what you expect. No wonder he pissed so many people off when he wrote his book because he was smarter than them and he researched more and his brain did funkier things than their brains could do. So he was able to kind of bring this together and challenge us. He challenges us. Um, So we get to the bridge. The events start to get a bit quieter right before the, the collapse. It gets real quiet. Pretty soon before he, the bridge collapses, he, John Keel's phone has been tapped. People say that, Kiel calls them, Kiel visits them. At one point, there's this amazing story about Kiel's secretary that's around. They're like, oh, I met your secretary. Kiel's like, I don't have a secretary. Like, Ooh. what are you talking about? Who is she? You know? So there's like all these like weird, deceptive things going on. Apparently, he finds out he has two phone numbers. So he calls oh, the other wow. phone number and he asks them if they have any messages for him. And they abruptly hang up, realizing that Kiel has freaking discovered that what they were doing. Wow. Kiel says, cheerily, any messages for me? And there's an audible gasp on the other end of the phone and this, the receiver gets slammed down. He's like, the Air Force lies to me, has lied to me. The telephone company lied to me. He's like, the UFO entities have lied to me. Why are y'all lying to Kiel? That's not very nice. Everyone's lying to Kiel. But some of the stuff they said comes true. You know, at one point, and this is incredible, but at one point they warn him that Martin Luther King is going to die before he dies. And he tries to get in contact with Martin Luther King and he tries hard and he can't, but then it doesn't happen. But then it happens a few months later. Oh my God. In the same exact way that they told him it was going to happen. Probably because they freaking did it. I mean, I I think that I don't think so. I think that they well, just I mean, they just we were can see about hypnosis. So they hypnotize the people who committed the. Okay, that's again, Sydney. Your insane perception. That's 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 in the book too, where they talk about like the people surrounding, like the people who killed John Wilkes Booth. He he mentions like he says that those people seem like they were possessed, like people who are sometimes committing these crimes they they are they end up admitting that they heard voices that something yeah. took over their bodies you know maybe you could look at a lot of these horrible crimes that happen in our country now and around the world where people kind of go nuts and they go commit this insane crime against all of us you know and 
like maybe in some cases it's not all them. That's why claiming insanity is the best thing you can do. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> At one point he goes to hand in a manuscript to a publisher for an article. And the guy says, I already received an article from you and it's terrible. And he hands it to him and somebody handed in an article pretending to be John Keel and it's terrible writing. And he's like, can't even believe this. At one point, it gets even more messed up when a bunch of people, his contactees that that have been in contact with him for a while, contact with him and in contact with, you know, God knows what else, they're all mourning John Keel's death because somebody told them John Keel passed away. So he gets like angry, you know, that this is Oh, I thought you were going to say he gets flowers. (laughs) No. No, he gets the opposite. At some point he wakes up and his all of his jets are turned on and the house is filling with fumes. Um what? his jets? Like it gets dangerous for Keel. There's some stories that go around that people are having weird dreams about some sort of a disaster. One lady even says to him that she's having a dream about Christmas presents floating up to the top on the river. Mm-hmm. And she's it freaks her out. There's like this, everything goes quiet. The UFO activity dies down. The Mothman activity dies down. December 15th, 1967. The old bridge is sure bouncing around today, Harold Boggs, 24 years old, comments to his wife, Marjorie. She's 19. They're holding their 18-month-old daughter, Christy. There were several small children on the bridge riding with their Christmas shopping mothers. The bridge was shaking, always shook. William Edmondson, 38, King of North Uh, of King, North Carolina, said later. His partner, Harold Cundiff, was asleep in their tractor trailer. The traffic jam worsened. The stream of cars and trucks grounds to a halt. The old bridge seems to shudder and squirm under the weight of all the cars. Frank Wamsley spotted his cousin, Barbara, and her husband, and, and he waved to them. Just ahead, he saw Marvin and his two friends. Suddenly, the whole bridge convulsed. It was 5.04 p.m. Steel screamed. The 700-foot suspension bridge twisted, and it split from its moon rings at either end. The electric cables swung across the bridge, snapped in a blaze of sparks. 50 vehicles crashed into the black waters of Ohio. Tons of steel smashing down on top of them. It sounded like someone moving furniture upstairs, and the lights went out, State Trooper R.E. O'Dell said. He was in an insurance office a block from the bridge. That's how he describes it. It sounded like somebody was moving furniture, and the lights went out. When the lights went out, I guess they really flickered for a minute. I knew something was wrong. I thought maybe it was a wreck, so I ran outside. Mary Heyer was in a drugstore on Main Street waiting for the traffic to ease so she could cross the bridge and pick up the daily notes from the Gallipolis Hospital. There was a sound like a jet plane or a plane going through the sound barrier, she said afterwards. A rumbling roar that hurt your eardrums. Then the lights flickered. My first thought was that something had blown up. My God, John was right. Something is exploding. I ran outside and someone yelled, the bridge went down. Keel had a reason. Keel was kind of being told by these entities and contactees that there was a disaster coming in this area, but he didn't know what it was. Warbury dropped the tree he was holding 
I guess this man was holding a tree. The bridge just kneeled over and started slowly on the Ohio side and falling like a deck of cards to the West Virginia side. There was a big flash and a puff of smoke when the last of the bridge caved in. I guess the lower power line snapped. I saw three or four people swimming around the water screaming and I couldn't do anything. I just stood there and watched. Howard Boggs found himself on the bottom of the river outside of his car. He's like, I don't know how I got out of the car or how I got to the surface, but all at once I was on top and I grabbed a hold of something like a big cotton ball. His wife and his children didn't make it. Bill Needham's trunk also sank to the bottom, but somehow managed to force a window and reach the surface. You could hear people screaming for help. Mary Heyer described the scene. I saw a tractor trailer that floated a little before it sank. Merchandise floating on the water. People on the West Virginia side of the river were so upset they could hardly realize what was going on. You could hear people saying, this can't be true. You read about things in the papers, it can't be happening here. It's like something out of a movie. You know, it's like, oh, wow. just doesn't seem real, right? Edward William Edmondson suddenly found himself on the surface of the water clinging to a truck seat. He had no idea how he'd escaped his vehicle. His partner didn't surface. I got there. I could see this truck floating in the water. Trooper Odell explained. There was a fellow hanging on the side of it. Then they sank. I don't know if he got out. People came running from all directions, silent, ashen-faced, knowing their friends and relatives could be out there in the icy water, now covered with debris, soggy, gaily wrapped Christmas presents. Right, yeah, because it's Christmas. Like, that means that the ice, the water was probably pretty cold, if not icy, when this happened. That's bad. Yeah. Boats of all kinds crisscrossed the river, picking up survivors on both sides. Some people were treated for shock. The night was closing in quickly. Boats with searchlights turned their beams onto the bridge surrounding water. A horrible silence fell over Point Pleasant. Sheriff Johnson's wow. tall, spare figure stood over the edge of the water. Put out a general call for rescue units, he told the deputy softly, and get everyone here. Block all the roads. Don't let anyone but rescue units in town. Mary Heyer pulled her coat around her pudgy frame and her face. For years of experience in overriding her emotions, she pushed open the door, walked to her phones, and they were dead. She switched the teletype machine and started to peck away at two fingers. At 5.04 p.m. this afternoon, because she's like the reporter, right? right Sirens right. wailed outside and the crowds grew. A girl was screaming hysterically in front of the office. I almost got killed. I could have been on there. All those people dead. I could have gotten killed. Death would claim many of the people, and here we come full circle, like the couple in the beginning of, of our story, that was killed on the bridge that John Keel ran into. He says Mary Heyer passed away in 1970. Some of the people who saw the Mothman died within six months. Wow. So maybe it was some sort of an omen of some kind. People always want to know what John Keel knows, he says. And he's like, he's like, I just use Socratic irony in my investigations. And this is this is actually a synchronicity with my life, because he's saying, I only admit like Socrates that the more I learn the less I know. Thank you for dining with us. Hold those cosmic appetites for next time. Reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast. 